0: Hello, everyone, and welcome. It's me, your friend, Victoria Stapleton. I get to be director of school and library marketing at Little Brown Books for Young Readers. And here we are today in the secret cave of literary fabulosity, surrounded by books, and I am here with Trenton Lee Stewart. It is a truth acknowledged by me humble listeners that I would not have this job here at Little Brown Books for Young Readers without Trenton Lee Stewart. I had left another job and I had come here and it seemed fine, but the call of Oregon, it was strong and it was sweet. And and I started to hear hear the call of Oregon ever more loudly. And then they put into my hands the galley of a book called The Mysterious Benedict Society. And the call of Oregon faded into the story of Rainy and Sticky and Kate, and always my most favorite of all, Constance. Welcome, Trenton Lee Stewart.
1: Thank you so much, Victoria.
0: The Mysterious Benedict Society and its sequels are what seem to be one of those books that's an eternal favorite. Uh, it's, we're celebrating the 10th anniversary of its publication. It has hundreds of thousands of readers uh, over the years. It has that staying power Uh, that is so cherished and envied by lesser authors. I'm sorry, I had to slip that in. (laughs) And I've thought about this a lot in preparation for chatting with you today, and I think really, and I think we're going to call this the puzzle of other people. The Mysterious Benedict Society deals with the puzzle of other people. I have my particular favorite in Constance, and we've seen other readers respond, and they talk about their particular Favorites, but can you describe the the process of getting to know these characters? So maybe we can get insight into their special magic.
1: Uh, I can try. Um, I think that it all evolved um, with the puzzles of puzzles. I just I knew that I was wanting to write a story that was going to depend upon talented characters working together to solve puzzles, riddle like problems. That was really the impetus for the story, and it was in the. Um, the process of sort of differentiating these characters and their different talents and then putting them together on these tasks that I started to learn more about who they were as people themselves and how what their particular dynamic was going to be. So I've thought about the fact that when we were all kids ourselves, we got stuck on projects with other people in school um, mm-hmm. and we learn things about people and when we're working on projects with them in ways that we don't learn about them otherwise, just sitting in a classroom with them, for instance, or in the cafeteria. And so I think that these characters learned a lot about each other, and I learned a lot about them too, just by the virtue of the kinds of tasks I set them to.
0: I think it's always interesting, like a puzzle. I used to be obsessed with first jigsaw puzzles and then crossword puzzles, because there's the pleasure of solving the puzzle. Eventually, all the pieces are in the jigsaw, or all the boxes are filled in the crossword. But a person is not solvable. Right. There is a seduction in knowing that the puzzle of, of Constance is always going to be changing because she's different from you. Yes?
1: Yes, I think so. I'm, I think that um, I'm one of the draws of getting to know other people is because we, we sense that there's more. There's always something else to learn. Um, so we like knowing what we, what we have already figured out but um, about people, but we I think we continue to be drawn by the mysterious. I've always been fascinated by what people carry around with them that other people don't know about.
0: These Each of these characters, Rainy and Sticky, Constance and Kate, they're not stand-ins and they're not symbols. They're each of them very fully formed to the reader. And I'm assuming to you, uh, they each get their place in the sun. They each get their complexity. Can you talk about the process of building each of these characters or discovering them? Maybe that's a, a better word for it.
1: Well, I think both words apply because it it really started with building and ultimately became discovering, I think, Mm -hmm. because I knew this was a a plot was going to be an important part of this book. It's very much a solve the mystery, solve the riddle kind of book. Um, And I had a number of those set up before I even got going, that uh-huh. I needed these kids to try to work together to solve or solve on their own. I-, I knew that I needed kids with different kinds of talents. That was part of the premise of the story. So the part of that was building, thinking, uh, what kind of talent will this child have? and what And what would be a nice full complement, a set of different kinds of abilities that we would find in these kids together? So I knew the abilities, and then I needed to figure out the personalities, um, and that I think all of that really was more building than discovery. In the sense of they weren't real people to me yet, but mm-hmm. then once I had, more or less, with some satisfaction, as- ascribed to them, this is this is Rennie's particular talent, and this is his personality, and this is Kate's. Once I had done that, and then I set them to working together. And figuring out how they were going to interact with each other, just trying to be true to the few basic things I had already established mm-hmm. about them. Uh, that then, I think, started to become a discovery. Here, this is what's Rennie's voice, and we hear his voice differently when he's talking with different characters. And you know, what's Kate's voice going to be like, and what's Constance's? And so that part really was kind of figuring out who these people were, it was like getting to know them mm-hmm. uh, in real life, except. In this case, there were life and death stakes <laughs> <All> <laughs> for these kids. And so as you, there are. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that sort of pressurizes you know, their personalities in a way.
0: It's interesting you speak about Rainey, and we're going to have to talk about this a little bit, Rainey versus Rainy. But you mentioned Rainey is different, comports himself or speaks differently with different characters. I know he's the main character, and we'll we'll get to a couple of the others in a second, but he, as the is almost the A character. You expect the A character to have a, a a firmness or almost a almost a like the magnet in a compass that gives you the the orientation for the uh-huh. story, but he's he's very subtly mischievous and I don't want to say untrustworthy, but he's unexpected.
1: Hmm.
0: I know he's he's named after one of your friends, but when I first started reading the book and I read aloud to myself, I said Rainy because he seemed fox like And that Rainy is short for Rainart. Sorry, I did take a lot of French, listeners. Do I remember anything other than where is the train? No, I don't. Okay, (laughs)
1: so. Yes, it's true. Well, he, yeah, he's named for uh, Reynard. It started with, I knew I wanted to create a character who was an agreeable character. Mm-hmm. The first, He was the first person whose personality I fully identified. And it's true, he's sort of a main character, but almost just barely, I think, because mm-hmm. we we see him first in each of the books, but he quickly is joined by the other characters and I do try to give them, as you say, their time and the light, too, and I'm um, close with all of them, but um, I had a friend who I like a lot and his name is Reynard, and so I thought, and he spelled differently, um, mm. but pronounced Reynard, and so I, I was thinking of Reynard, and I was thinking about naming him Rennie because of my friend, and then it just seemed too perfect when it occurred to me that Reynard is the clever fox from Folktales, and I thought, well, that's who this kid is. He's clever, he's sly, and he's, um, he's quick, quick-witted. So it seemed too perfect. And I kept it, but I kept my friend's pronunciation of his name, which mm-hmm. has led to all sorts of trouble, of course, because all sorts of readers think that I'm pronouncing his name wrong. Um, and they're right and they're wrong. Um, so Rennie and I long ago agreed that um, that we're just, you know, he'll answer to either pronunciation. It makes sense. When you look at it on paper, it often looks like Rennie. So.
0: This just popped into my mind. is the the GIF versus GIF question.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. That's... It's, GIF Stressful. is correct. I don't
0: care what the inventor said. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs>
1: it's true. It's true. But giraffes beg to differ, so that's the, the trouble. You just don't want them to weigh in on the it's question. True. They have their it's own true. and they're strong headed about it. But in Rennie's case I, I think I know what you mean. He's, um, I think he's really, he's very, he's a sensitive person. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a certain malleability about him. He's, he's a nimble thinker. And I think that that sort of affects how he talks when he talks to different people. And it's not mm-hmm. a radical change, but he's capable of making a radical change. That's why he's good at solving other people in mm-hmm. a way, figuring out what their motivations are. And so on, as he's very sensitive to what other people seem to be wanting. Um, and that affects that affects his interactions with people, which doesn't necessarily make him the most predictable character it's true
0: Mm -hmm. one thing in particular i mean i like this is sort of the build versus discover thing that his character you can see where it's organic but then he's adapting to the plot you've done the character in a way that his sensitivity and his nimbleness of mind are integral parts of his character but the plot requires him to use those qualities in an interesting organic way so in keeping with one of the grandest traditions of middle grade literature, his parents are missing. In fact, uh, the parents of most of these kids are, let us say, absent. Right. Gonna not spoil it. <laughs> 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 They're absent. And I and I think it's interesting how Rainey deals with adults. Mm-hmm. That, it, that is part of that. Can you speak to that a little bit and then contrast it with some of the other kids?
1: Sure, I'll try. Um, it's true that if you're writing a a children's adventure story, Mm -hmm. that the first problem you have is parents. You really need to get parents and guardians out of the way as quickly as possible.
0: Because they don't understand.
1: Right, they don't understand, and nor do they have any interest usually in letting you go off on some big adventure where you're going to be the one saving the day and solving all the problems um, at great risk to your well-being. So you do typically, as a writer in that situation, have to get rid of the parents in some way. So that's one of the reasons that my characters all start the story as orphans and runaways, and in Rennie's particular case, and we know that he's grown up in this orphanage, but that he's got a strong attachment to his tutor, Miss Paramol. Mm-hmm. And it's true. I think he just, he connects with her more than he's connected with any of his peers growing up. And I think it's just a function of, not just a function of, but at least a part of function of, just being intelligent beyond his years. Mm-hmm. And being just open-hearted enough to not have hidden it early on and he's still enough of himself that he is willing to read books and be seen reading books and then get tormented for that by Mm -hmm. other kids in his Mm -hmm. orphanage and so on. So he still wants something you can tell. He wants to have a friend group of some kind, even though he's not explicitly stating that early on. He just knows. I think the reader senses that he wants something, but it certainly makes a lot more sense to him. He can have regular conversations with an adult who's Mm -hmm. intelligent and cares about him um, and talks to him in a way that, he can be spoken to as a a kid with superior sort of mental faculties. Mm -hmm. So he's comfortable in that relationship. But it's not the same thing at the same time as having friends.
0: I think it's interesting to think about him and the way he is in the world, particularly with adults, versus Kate, who is almost his opposite in a way. She's just as smart, just as creative, just as inventive, but it's a different sort of intelligence. I'm a huge fan of Gardner's theory of different intelligences. And hers is very, as you would say in the academic parlance, kinesthetic uh, or kinetic, Is that it's about movement. And her her way of relating to people is extremely physical, but in the way you presented her, it's no less valid or useful or enjoyable. Do, do you know many people or kids like Kate that were behind that?
1: Uh, I wasn't thinking of any particular kids like Kate when I was coming up with things about Kate. Mm-hmm. Um but I've met people since then, especially, and there, there are people I've met that remind me of Kate. Just in their their attitude, they might not be physically gifted like mm-hmm. Kate is, but there are people who are. They seem to be irrepressible in their spirit, and they tend to they tend to think that there's no insurmountable problem. And those people are always they're useful. <laughs> <laughs> They're useful if you, you know, if you have other people who say we're all doomed, it's nice to have a sort of counterweight of somebody who says, no, this is going to be fine.
0: She's just game.
1: Yeah, she is. She's
0: up for anything. And I love her, her fearlessness and yet her just blunt practicality of I have this bucket that has everything I need in it. Mm-hmm. And we're going to get there. I don't know where there is, but we're going to get there.
1: Right, yeah, I think Kate definitely. I mean, they they've all had different experiences with the, their own particular gifts and mm-hmm. what that how that has shaped their personality. And in Kate's case, I think she's she's a person who doesn't doubt her ability to do stuff because mm-hmm. she's always been able to do it, and she she's always been able to solve problems. And so she's been pretty comfortable being who she is, this quirky person who chooses to carry a bucket with her because. It solves all the problems that she thinks need to be solved. And she's the one who's run away to the circus. And so she interacts with adults in her life, but not really in any kind of a way in which she, I don't know, she doesn't subvert herself in any Mm -hmm. way. She tends to put herself forward as being the person that she's going to be.
0: She has almost the most childlike or innocent um, approach to life, which is interesting to me when you contrast it with Constance, who truly is constant.
1: Yes. Possibly Contrary.
0: Oh, Constance Contrary, my heart loves you best of all. (laughs) Gee, listeners, I wonder why. No comments. If I think of Kate as a young soul, I think of Constance as like the oldest woman in the world wrapped in a very itchy red bathrobe. (laughs) Would that be accurate?
1: (laughs) I would say that that image was my touchstone when I started writing (laughs) the character of Constance
0: because i remember i was looking at the cover of the of the 10th anniversary edition then i went back and i looked at the original cover and there she there she is constance is, is is not the most physically prepossessing character but she has so much power packed into her presentation of just she will cut you with the sharp edge of her tongue and yet you're not interesting enough to her to forgo a nap <laughs> And yet, I'm also afraid of Constance. I am legitimately <laughs> afraid. If 30 years from now were she alive, would, what would Constance be doing? Would she be ruling the world? Would she have expanded to the universe? I mean, that's, she just really.
1: I, I think it's safe to say that she's ruling whatever universe she occupies at the time. Unless she's changed dramatically, I'm sure she's changed somewhat. Um, By the time she hits 30, but yeah, Constance, was. she scared me too. Even just as a writer trying to come up with a character that I knew needed to be a problem Mm -hmm. for her friends, um, that I I wanted to make a character who created challenges for the people uh, working with her. And so she needed to be, in her way, supremely annoying and obstreperous and obstinate and all, all of the adjectives that apply to a stubborn child with a really strong personality. I wanted her to be like that, but not make... Readers not want to follow her or throw the book away or get tired of her, but actually find it endearing or amusing enough that they would want to stick with her.
0: Well, first of all, obstreperous is one of the best words in the English language and not used nearly enough. I, I think also just supremely awesome for her. I said awesome. I'm so sorry, people. I know. I know. I grew up in the 80s. I'm sorry. But a perfect word for her... It's interesting to contrast her with Kate and Rainey in that Rainey is more a measured response to trauma and uncertainty. And Kate is sort of a joyful, willing, fearless overcoming of difficulties or, or diff- hard situations. And Constance is sort of like, I just don't care. But not for a naive way, in a naive way, or, or through wisdom, just sort of, I have zero special word, left to give, or I never had them, or I left them at the office or in my playpen, please do not start with me. So it's, it's not so much a fearlessness. It's a refusal to acknowledge that something should be
1: feared. Um, It's a really interesting question. I, I think because she's, she's a peripatetic critic. Mm-hmm. of every situation she enters, I think. So she she recognizes on some level, we see early on what all the kids recognize, that there's this supreme threat and they're going to have to band together to try to combat it and essentially save the world or save mm-hmm. a lot of people. So it it's as though Constance has signed on for the task. Sure, I'll do it. But then all the way through, she's just going to point out what's ridiculous about things. So, you know, Kate's kind of half... Glass is half full kind of person, mm. and um, Rini might approach the glass a little bit differently. Constance is just going to criticize the glass in a way. <laughs> <laughs> and why are we engaged in this exercise? It makes no sense. Somebody
0: did not wash this glass properly. There are still drops left over. From they did not use the casket. Okay, exactly. I can hear her <laughs> now. And yet she still has a yearning mm. for belonging. Yeah, in this group
1: certainly she does and I think Constance in her way um, and we have yet to talk about Sticky of course but I think she's she's just the least developed in terms of learning how mm-hmm. to make the connection you know she wants a connection but but she does not know how to assert herself in a way yet that is creating the kind of connection with her friends probably that she feels she wants. It's being created. I mean, mm-hmm. they're all loyal to each other by book's and for sure. But it's a challenge. getting It's not a straight path, getting there with Constance. She's figuring out how to be with people, I think, even as she, she contributes. By virtue of her personality, she contributes to the mission, too.
0: I think it's great that that she has this brittle quality to her and yet somehow a learning curve inside her. I'm glad you brought up Sticky because to me, while I do love Constance, I think Sticky is actually the bravest character in this book. Each of the other children, obviously the the parents, are unavailable due to, to circumstances beyond the children's control. That's not their choice. But for Sticky, the absence of his parents is a choice his parents are the source of his trauma of his of his pain and he he knows the consequences of connection, and failing in that connection, and yet he's still willing to try again.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you think so. I don't think I actually, until I was nearing uh, Mm -hmm. the end of the book, I don't think I actually was as fully aware, even myself, of how brave I thought Sticky was. Mm -hmm. Um, I knew that I was putting him out there, and that he was putting himself out there in the story, but it really was sort of in reflection as I was nearing the end of a first draft and thinking about how are all these characters manifesting themselves, that it occurred to me, what a brave kid he it's because he his mannerism is one of timidity, so he's he's always hesitant. He, he's full of self doubt, and a lot of that has been earned. So he's been under these highly stressful situations, mm-hmm. in which he enters quiz contests, and so he's been under a lot of pressure when he wouldn't necessarily have chosen it for himself um, and so sometimes he's frozen up despite his great knowledge he's frozen up and done badly so yeah he's he has failed before and he had this difficult situation with his parents mm-hmm. that made him feel like he was not succeeding in that relationship as you say and nonetheless like all of them he had this sense of um, wanting to find out what that special opportunity was. He didn't give up on the possibility of maybe his gifts being something that he could use to be part of something but because he is at this point of his life a nerve Kid who doubts himself a lot and pretty regularly, it does seem to put him in the brave category in a way that the others don't quite exist even uh, exist in, Even though they're all pretty brave. Even
0: Rainy, which who I usually think of as brave, I don't think he's as as brave as Sticky. And speaking of names, Sticky's name to me, as I worked through the entire series of books and I've reflected on him, that name ha- becomes so. Multi-layered. There's parts of it that are are ironic. I mean, because you think about stick-to-itiveness, mm-hmm. he's timid in his presentation, and yet. He has the stronger faith.
1: Right. Yeah. And though he founders um, a little bit here and there in the second book, readers can see um, Mm -hmm. him struggling a little bit with he's made some he's taken some big steps in his life. And so he has some problems with how he handles that success. But in the end, he once again, I think, puts himself out there in a way that he's the he asserts himself as the brave and dogged one in a way that nobody really saw coming.
0: I'm glad we spent a certain amount of time talking about these characters and the organicness of their decision making because it really is about decision making in middle grade good middle grade fiction it's where the characters realize the world is not does not exist in its current pattern or shape or whatever by The world exists because adults made choices, and they can see adults making choices, and they are learning that they too can make choices. And it's interesting to see how they relate to each other, but then to the adults in their lives, they're, for lack of a better term, they're in loco parenti. (laughs) I said that. Oh, my Lord, I said that. For
1: lack of a better term. (laughs) For
0: lack of a better term. I don't want to say replacement parents or foster parents because that brings up other issues, but how they relate to those adult authority figures. And it's just interesting in each of these cases how these kids could decide differently. We're presented with Mr. Benedict, who is a supremely amazing character, except there is Le Drop the Curtain first the best name in middle grade fiction. I defy the listeners to find a better one. And they will fail. <laughs> they will fail. Mr. Curtin is he's not just a villain, he's a set of different choices, gone a different way from his twin. And he's he is himself seductive in a way. I mean, after all, the main vehicle of his of his villainy is the whisperer. Can you talk a little bit about what you've put into that plot? Because that is a lot about these kids deciding for themselves.
1: Right. Well, yeah. It's interesting to consider how, for me, how Mr. Benedict and Mr. Curtin developed differently mm-hmm. um, under different circumstances. And the circumstances of Drop the Curtains' childhood remain mysterious to us. Ultimately, I, in my books, explore Mr. Benedict's circumstances and how he became the person he is. But yeah, certainly they're they're very different individuals. And Mr. Benedict is sort of embraces the messiness of life in a way that Curtain doesn't. Curtin mm-hmm. always wants everything to be. Strictly controlled, and that's part of where he comes from.
0: So, because we don't know about Mr. Curtin's uh, upbringing, we can't really talk about this uh, in terms of nature versus nurture, which is frankly not super interesting anyway. But they are, when you think about it, there's this letter of the law and the spirit of the law. There's authority based on constraint, and then there's authority based on growth. Is that something you thought about at all?
1: Yeah, I think that's pretty accurate. That in both cases, I think in Mr. Curtin's case, it's delusional in a way, but in both cases, there seems to be a belief that that the world can be a better place. Mm -hmm. And both are fully engaged with that idea Mm -hmm. as a project. But in Mr. Benedict's case, what he's having to do is essentially oppose what Mr. Curtin is trying to do Mm -hmm. because he is trying to um, make the world a better place through a specific kind of execution of authority, as you're talking about. And I think Mr. Benedict's perspective would be authority is useful insofar as it helps people enrich their spirits and find who they're going to be and how we foster community. And in Mr. Curtin's case, it would be authority is is the end because somehow the world is a better place if we're all standing where we're supposed to be standing.
0: It's really interesting. And I'm just thinking about this now, as you said that, which again is why these books are so uh, amazing. There's so much packed in there. In one way, Mr. Benedict, he seems negative. He's opposing but really, that's in the service of an ethic of of adulthood is about deciding for yourself.
1: Right. Yeah. He's offering pushback against the opposite notion.
0: Which can be more difficult. Yes. In fact, it is more difficult than what Mr. Curtin is offering. That's why it's what Mr. Curtin is offering is so seductive.
1: Right. A certain um, certainly there's that from his perspective there is a there's a black and white kind of approach. To and that.
0: just do what you're told. Yeah. If you just do what you're told, that's it. You don't have to think about it anymore. It's almost, oh, I'm going to have more thoughts, sorry, (laughs) a retreat into childhood. But Mm I mentioned before about this world is not the way it is just by fiat. Right. It's we make decisions.
1: Yes. And and I think Mr. Curt's perspective is what appears to be. He has a really sophisticated brain and and a very unsophisticated perspective on how the world should be.
0: Which brings me back to Constance, but we will leave that. For another time and another discussion.
1: Sounds lovely. I look forward to it.
0: Thank you so much for being with us, Trent.
1: Thank you for having me, Victoria. Uh,
0: this is a real. This is a treat. Now, uh, the Mysterious Benedict Society is on shelves everywhere at schools and libraries and bookstores and hopefully in your home. An excellent companion book to the Mysterious Benedict Society is The Secret Keepers, featuring one of the truly great characters of middle grade literature, Reuben Pedley. And there is an entire discussion about parents and the value of parents and the good of parents and having a parent as your inspiration in a middle grade story in a positive way. This has been the Little Brown School and Library podcast. I've been Victoria Stapleton, and with me has been Trenton Lee Stewart. Say goodbye, Trent, before I giggle. Goodbye.
1: Too late. <laughs>